Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Hey folks, Pastor Joel here. Welcome to another special edition of the Covenant Podcast. I hope wherever this podcast finds you that you are doing well. Uh, We are going to pick back up where we left off last time talking about biblical prophecy with all of the things going on in the world, all of the warfare that we see, so much global unrest that honestly most of us have not seen in certainly our adult lifetimes. Uh, That's prompted some um, questions from many of you, and we're trying to answer two of the most prominently asked questions that we've received over the last few weeks. The last time we were together, we tried to address the issue of the modern nation state of Israel and whether, if any, prophetic role that it might play in the world. Uh, Now that we've gotten beyond that, we want to address this issue. Given all that's transpiring in the world, are we actually close to the end of the age? And there are biblical passages that give us reason to ask those kinds of questions. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now that passage that I just read to you from the 24th chapter of Matthew is called the Olivet Discourse. And it is possibly one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. It's certainly the most difficult passage in Matthew's gospel, but it's also the passage that tends to come to our minds when we are put in the middle of the kinds of experiences that we have been over these last few weeks. We see what's going on in Israel. We see what's happening around the world as tensions are rising up. Many folks reasonably are asking, I mean, could it be possible that we're on the verge of World War III? And followers of Jesus want to know what this means biblically. And we also want to know, is this related in any way to the end of the age? And so that's the question I want to deal with today. Are we close to the end of the age? Now, let me just, I'm just going to spend the next few moments pulling truth as best I can from the 24th chapter of Matthew. But there's some things we have to realize about the difficulty of this passage of scripture. First is Jesus uses some unfamiliar language here. It is a mixture of the prophetic, which would be a description of the future, but also the apocalyptic. And if you were with us when we went verse by verse through the revelation, the last book of the Bible, 
we talked about apocalyptic literature and, and the way that Jews would use that literature in the ancient world. They would give you veiled references to things that were not entirely clear. That's the very nature of apocalyptic language. And sometimes the prophetic and the apocalyptic can very easily be mistaken for the same thing. They're not the same. And the switching back and forth that happens makes it more difficult to get our heads around this because Jesus speaks prophetically, then he speaks apocalyptically, and sometimes we wonder which he's doing. Secondly, he doesn't even make chronological distinctions in this sermon. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever seen the movie 1517 to Paris, it's the story of three young American military personnel who interrupt a terrorist attack while they're on leave in Europe, and it's an inspiring look at, at the heroism of these men but sometimes that movie is confused. I had to watch the thing three times, guys, in order to actually get what was going on because there are all kinds of flashbacks to various times in the lives of each of those soldiers. And sometimes it's difficult. And if you just drop in in the middle of the movie, it's virtually impossible for you to tell, you know, which particular period of history you're looking at. And Jesus' description of the future in Matthew 24 reads a little bit like that. Um, and then thirdly, because of those two realities, that he mixes the apocalyptic with the prophetic, we don't always know exactly where he's at chronologically, there's no solid consensus among the scholarship as to the precise meaning of several things here. In fact, the more study you tend to do, honestly, of Matthew 24, and the deeper students of Scripture get into this text, the more the debate seemingly arises. And so before we get into the text, I, I, I want to be honest about the three schools of thought, four, I'm sorry, four schools of thought on how we understand this passage. And these schools of thought are, first of all, pre-terrorism. Uh, pre advocate that Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24 solely about things that will happen in the immediate future of his disciples. So a preterist would say, when you're looking at Matthew 24, there's nothing there that's in your future or mine. It's all already happened. All right, Jesus is predicting in this passage what will happen from the time of his resurrection and ascension until roughly the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And that happened in 70 AD. Now, the most well-known advocate of this view is a Presbyterian pastor named R.C. Sproul. And he wrote a book defending this position called The Last Days According to Jesus. Pastor, is he right? No, I don't think he is. Are you sure? No, I'm not sure at all. And so hang, hang with me here because we're going to deal with these other uh, positions as well. Contrasted with preterism is futurism. And if you're a futurist, you believe that in Matthew 24, you're seeing a description of nearly everything in the future. Everything even from our own perspective in history, is yet to come. Then there's thirdly, historicism, which believes that all prophecy is a pre-written record of the entire course of history, from the time of the first century until the end of the world. Still a one-to-one -one correspondence. But the reformers, like Luther and Calvin and others, believe that it it correlated to the wider history of the church and not merely to their own time. So if you were to ask the reformers, uh, what period of history is Matthew 24 referring to? Uh, they would say, well, it's not the time of Jesus, but it's also not the end of the age. It's sometime in between. And then the last school of thought is idealism. Idealism teaches that this is a dramatic presentation of transcendent spiritual realities that lie behind world events 
and that occur in cycles throughout history. Uh, and this is where I have, after almost 30 years of studying the scriptures, landed myself. Uh, I see these words kind of like the words of John in Revelation as a more panoramic description of repeated cycles of historical moments, both from Jesus' own time, his immediate future, and our own. Am I right? Probably. Am I wrong? Well, maybe. Could I be wrong? Sure, but probably not. Uh, will I be okay if I discover that I'm wrong? Absolutely. And that's kind of my point here, that it's okay to study these issues. It's okay to have an opinion, even a strong one. I do. It's fine to be confident in that opinion. But before we even get into this text, I just think it behooves us to consider that 2,000 years of faithful Christian scholarship has produced no global consensus among God's people on this issue. So we all ought to approach this very difficult passage with a measure of humility. And when you get to the point that you know what you know and everybody else is a heretic or their teaching is harmful, uh, your confidence is no longer confidence. Now it's just flat out pride. Uh, and that's not something that any of us want to aspire to. So let's talk a little bit about now about this passage. Uh, this section of Matthew, again, is the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus is seated on the Mount of Olives when he gives it. He's just finished calling out the scribes and the Pharisees for their legalism and their oppression of God's people. He's just wept bitterly over the coming destruction of Jerusalem because of the obstinance of God's people. And he has taken the road from Jerusalem to Bethany to a spot where he's now sitting with his disciples that incidentally had a spectacular view of Solomon's temple off in the distance. And it's on this spot where he says in chapter 24, verse 2, to the great shock, I am sure, of his disciples, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, if you can imagine being one of Jesus' disciples in that moment with that spectacular view of the temple and, and hearing as you're seeing that view the words of Jesus describing the destruction of that temple, uh, it's reasonable to think that they would believe he's not merely talking about the destruction of the temple, but also the end of the world itself. Um, as a matter of fact, if, if you were of a certain age in the early fall of 2001, like I was, I was 29 years old at, in, on September 11th, 2001, you already understand a little bit of what they're feeling. I don't know where you were, but I remember where I was. I remember how I felt that morning when I saw those planes hit the Twin Towers, and then later on another one hit the Pentagon. And the world wasn't coming to an end on September 11th, but man, from my position as a 29-year-old, glued to that television screen on that day as a Westerner, as an American who had until that moment enjoyed the relative security of living here, it sure did feel like the end of the world. And, and I have to imagine it must have felt that way to Jesus' disciples. Um, kind of like it did again on September 11th when all of a sudden churches are suddenly filled with people looking for answers. In the disciples' minds, the destruction of Solomon's temple would be such a catab like it was unfathomable to them that that could even happen. And if it did, it had to have been such a cataclysmic event that it could scarcely occur without bringing with it the end of the age. So Jesus responds to their shock and fear in this way. Matthew 24, 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Now what's going to come next is a description of two events rather than just one. 
The New Testament scholar George Eldon Ladd calls this prophetic foreshortening, uh, an overlapping of two events described in a single message. So you have the soon coming destruction of the Temple Mount will not be the end of the world, but it foreshadows the actual end of the world, something that's coming in the end. And as we sometimes move through a passage like this, it's hard to tell which of those two judgments Jesus is describing. But there are some things that, regardless of where you happen to land on the chronology, are abundantly clear, and that's what I want to focus on in this episode. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen, and here is how you need to respond if you're my disciples and you see it happen. All right? So question number one, what's going to happen? And we need to look at this passage from the disciples' place in history and also from our own place in history. And when you look at the immediate fulfillment of so much here, it's truly stunning to look at the accuracy of Jesus' prediction. He says, first off, there are going to be false teachers and false Christs. Verse 5, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, that was spoken in the early part uh, of the first decade of the first century, and you can go to any good library today and browse through the history of Gnostic literature written around that same time, and you will see authors speaking of multiple messianic pretenders. Their views were antithetical to the faith given by the apostles, and many professing Christians were led astray. We also see the same thing today. Cult groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, nationalist culture warriors, liberal Christian groups that espouse Marxism and sexual immorality, the prosperity gospel, QAnon. I could keep going and going, but you kind of get the picture, right? False teachers, false Christ, false teaching. Jesus' disciples saw it then, and we see it now. The other thing we see is constant conflict. Verse 6, he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, there was a rumor of a war in A.D. 40, just a few decades after these words were uttered. Caligula, who was the Roman emperor from 31 to 41, had attempted to erect a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. You can imagine that's not going to go over well with Orthodox Jews, and the Romans and Jews didn't agree on much, but if you read both of their histories around this time, you're going to find that they did agree there was a lot of conflict between the two of them. And if you fast forward today to this moment, I will tell you, I have not lived, nor has I believe any generation still alive lived during a time when some conflict, even before all of the conflict we've seen over the last several months, uh, and even the year, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Israel, even prior to all of that. We've never lived during a time when some conflict somewhere wasn't plaguing the world and was having some effect on our lives, whether it was the ability to get a shirt in my size or uh, the price of gasoline or whatever that might be. We've never known a world that did not have significant conflict happening somewhere. And while I'm on that subject, the same is true of natural disasters. Not even a generation after Jesus spoke these words, there's this major earthquake that strikes Phrygia in AD 61. Pompeii was leveled in AD 63. Antioch, where Matthew in all likelihood wrote his gospel, saw large city reshaping earthquakes in 37, 42, and then again in 115. 
So that's something that Jesus predicted. Did it, did it happen then or is it happening now? I, I think the answer is yes. Also false starts. He says in verse 8, all these are the beginning of birth pangs. I don't know if there's any married people with kids listening who have had a false alarm when the wife was carrying a child. Maybe she woke up in the middle of the night and maybe, I don't know, maybe you just ate too much Mexican food, but it really felt like that kid was coming and you're like, this is it. And you get to the hospital in the middle of the night only to be told it was a false alarm. Jesus said history is going to be a lot like that. A lot of confusion about the time of delivery. This is the end. No, not really. It's really not. So a lot of false starts. Fourthly, he says there's going to be separation by tribulation. He says in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In other words, you're going to be tested and a lot of you are going to fail the test. That makes me shiver a bit, actually, especially when I compare these words to the, the rather minor inconveniences that we've had to endure over the last three years or so and the, the sort of spastic way that so many Christians have reacted. And it makes me wonder what we're going to do when the real persecution starts. It's just a question, but I think it's worthy a worthy question for us to meditate on a bit because the result of that is going to be spiritual deterioration. Jesus says in verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's saying people are going to get tired of suffering and they're going to give up. Now these words are prophetic, but Jesus is, according to what we read here, less interested in the, that prophecy than he is in the perseverance of his people. He wants you and I to endure, and finally to be part of something else. That's the forward progress of the gospel. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, we speak today of unreached people groups. Um, maybe there are Christians among those people, but there's no indigenous governing church among them. We speak of unengaged peoples. Uh, the Tukang Besi Selatan of Indonesia would be one of those groups, 130,000 followers of Islam. They have no access to the Bible. They have no missionary to reach them. They have no indigenous churches. And as far as we can tell, zero followers of Jesus Christ. And, and people like that are why at Covenant we believe in the Great Commission and we give so generously to international engagement. But sometimes we can get confused when we read those words and start thinking, especially in, in Matt, when we read a, a text like Matthew 24, 14, it goes, Jesus saying he can't come back until we've reached all those people. Well, the truth is, while there are presently a number of tribes among us with no gospel witness, history will demonstrate that there's actually not a single ethnic group that at some point in history hasn't already been reached. One example of that is the Berber people in North Africa, Morocco area. They are unreached peoples. But that's not the same thing as to say they have never been reached. And we know that because one of the greatest African theologians to ever emerge was St. Augustine. He was a Berber. Uh, so we, we, almost every idea you and I have about the Trinity came from this man. And so um, that what we observe with clarity from the time of Jesus to our own is that there's this faithful remnant of God's people who continue to move forward. When they stood 
in the Roman arena facing death, when Rome itself fell, fell, when the Black Plague ravaged Europe, when they were chased throughout the Middle East, throughout every age, the refrain was the same. Jesus is Lord. And they and we want a timeline, don't we? We see all these things happening around us, and we want to know. We want to get our charts and graphs out and try to figure all of this out. But instead, what Jesus gives them and us is the dose of reality that will characterize their world and ours. And so Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that until he returns, there will never be an age in which his followers don't have to live with all of these realities. We need to accept that. We need to endure through it. And we're promised that if we do those two things, that ultimately we will come out of it. So now let me answer another question. How will this affect God's people? And the rest of Matthew 24 gives us three different ways that that's going to happen. First off is instability. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right. He's referencing Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. What's he talking about? Well, in 167 BC, way prior to Jesus, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. And most Jews understood that event to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. But when Jesus speaks here, he seems to suggest that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. More is coming. Eusebius in 67 AD declared this prophecy fulfilled when the Jews fled persecution to the mountains of Pella. Jesus said, let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. There are going to come times, he's saying, when calamity and trouble descend so rapidly that you don't even have time to gather provisions. And alas, he continues, for women who are pregnant and for those nursing infants in these days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Uh, it was a common experience for pregnant women and winter travelers. Difficult mobility, hard to get around. So he's saying you need to pray that you get where you need to get quickly. Why is that? Well, he continues, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now that takes me back to a subject I covered in our last special edition. And that is that there's been a teaching around for about 190 years now that a rapture will occur prior to this moment and that God's people will escape. The tribulation is for unbelievers and not believers, they say. Now, I got to tell you, personally, I, I hope they're right. It is one of those areas where not only do I admit I could be wrong, I kind of hope I am. Uh, and I have many colleagues, additionally, here at Covenant, others in the pastorate, academic colleagues of mine who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, the problem occurs when, in light of that doctrine, you start to focus on everything you will escape, uh, or you get this flippant sort of disposition toward the end of the age as if to say, well, I'm not going to be here, so it really doesn't matter. And I'll just tell you, I'm not so sure that you can make Jesus' words here square with that. But even if you can, 
There is no assurance that you will never experience tribulation. In fact, just the opposite. We've seen it throughout history. Uh, you may or may not know that the 20th century, the 1900s, saw more people killed for their Christian faith than all of the previous 19 centuries combined. Did you know that? So we need to pray for the persecuted church. But we also need to grasp something of their perspective. You know, I, I was in India about 12 years ago. I was training pastors there, about 60 of them, and one of them who was named after St. Ambrose. We gathered around him and prayed because he told his story. He left his village about 150 miles northwest of where we were, that city, and Hindu fundamentalists in that city had threatened to kill him and torture the member of his, members of his church. And Ambrose was going back home. And to this day, I don't have any idea what happened to Ambrose. But I think if he could hear my brothers and sisters in America talk about a future tribulation and saying, we don't have to worry about that, I think he might look at you like you were cross-eyed. Uh, because he's living in the kinds of things that Jesus promises all of us. We're going to live in instability. We've really only experienced a small taste of that, guys. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we ready for more? Instability. Secondly, they're going to be tempting substitutes. And again, we're, we're answering the second question. How will these future events that Jesus described affect God's people? Verse 23 of Matthew 24. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. What's he saying? He's saying there are going to be times throughout history where Christians are going to be full of, they're going to be surrounded by instability. They're going to be the subjects of tribulation and somebody's going to come along and promise you a quick way out. And they might even be able to perform miracles to make you think they are legitimate. And so what we need is discernment. We need discernment. So what does this mean for God's people? It, it, it means there's going to be a lot of instability. In the midst of that instability, you and I are going to be tempted to take a quick and easy way out, which means there needs to be a call to clarity. Jesus says in verse 27, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a really pretty kind of thought, isn't it? It's kind of like when you see buzzards flying in a circle. You know, somebody here in the panhandles probably hit a deer. When the end comes, you won't have to question whether it has come. There, there will be no, is this it? If you have to ask, then it isn't. Jesus says, when the real thing transpires, everybody is going to know. And this is the hard truth as we move closer and closer to the end. Are we close to the end of the age? I don't know if it's imminent. I can tell you that from the time of Jesus' disciples all the way up into the present, every generation of Christians has been encouraged to be ready. We are certainly closer today than we were yesterday. That much is true. Um, but we also need to know, as we wait on him to return, God doesn't promise us protection from temporary persecution. We're not given a strategy in the middle of this to save our culture. God is calling us to endure 
And then that brings me to this last thing. What's the final challenge? What should we do in light of Jesus' words here? Verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He's saying you continue to endure, you continue to obey, you continue to take Jesus at his word and you continue to discern the truth from error according to the word of God. And when things seem unclear to you, like, for example, the times in which we're living, where you wonder, is the end close? And the cottage industry of evangelical prophecy teachers starts popping up everywhere, from TBN to everywhere else, and telling you they've got it all figured out, and you need to send them money, and you need to buy their books, and you need to do all of those things. Don't be worrying so much about those things that are unclear, but cling to the clear commands of Jesus. Because one day, those who have done this are going to look up to see the kings of kings silence every mouth, cause every knee to bow, and gather all of us and take us home. That's my answer to the question. And some of you who've been paying attention are going, that's not really answering the question. Well, it, it kind of is. It's telling you I don't know. And any other honest pastor or theologian will tell you exactly the same thing. If there's anybody out there who says otherwise, they are trying to sell you something. And what they're trying to sell you is probably snake oil. And it's my job as a pastor to warn you, don't settle for, do not fall for the schemes of religious quacks. Let's be content with what Jesus tells us and what we can know. Let's cling to his clear commands. And let's, uh, let's, we can talk, we can speculate, we can even debate with each other about those unclear teachings. But ultimately, let's look forward to the return of Jesus and do that in obedience. Uh, the British thinker G.K. Chesterton put it this way, it is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head. In other words, he tries to figure all this out, is what he's saying. And not unnaturally, his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. So when moments like this come, we're not charged guys with trying to figure it all out. In fact, there are things we just don't know for sure and we never will, but there are also things we do know. And the challenge is to get your head inside those heavens and be faithful until you see the Lord. Get your head inside the heavens and just be faithful. Is he coming back soon? Is this a sign of the end? I do not know, but I do know he's coming. And our call is just simply to be faithful. And ultimately, just as the words of Jesus encourage us to do here, when we see and experience these things, here's what Jesus tells us to do. Look up. Your redemption is nearer than you think. Don't ever forget that it's nearer than you think that there will come a day when this world that we know that is so full of war and so full of uncertainty and instability will not be anymore. A new world is coming. 
And that really is what is exciting. My friend Chris Davis is a pastor in Alexandria, Virginia. I'll be having him come up in, in the ensuing months and, and do a, a, a weekend with us on biblical prophecy. Uh, Chris has just published a book on the teaching of biblical prophecy and the second coming of Jesus. And for those of you who are familiar with the, the lyrics of the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, you'll recognize the title of this book, Bright Hope for Tomorrow. Guys, that's the purpose of biblical prophecy. That's the purpose of every single teaching of Jesus around the end of the age. And so when these things happen, don't worry so much about trying to figure it all out. Just remember that Jesus said, when you experience these things, your redemption is near. Let your hope rest in all of that. I love you, Covenant family. And to any of the rest of you who are listening in, I pray this is a, a great addition to the primary teaching you receive from your pastor and your church family. Although certainly if you're new to the, the Panhandle area and you're not a member of a church anywhere else, we would love to have you here on Sundays at 9 and 11. But for now, I hope this has been helpful to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you soon. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.